Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and uh, so glad to be able to be with you this morning. And uh, I was just texting with my friend Jeremy, telling him that uh, I can't wait for the day when I get to be with my people again on Sunday morning. Uh, but for now, I'm thankful for a, a camera and a live stream that we can come to you this way. I think the biggest question on my heart is, uh, does this make us televangelists? I don't, I don't know what that means for me. For Paul Mumaw, I think it's a yes. It's a definite yes. Uh, but maybe have some fun with this. If you're watching on Facebook, let us know in the comments. Who do you think on our staff would make the best televangelist and why? For the rest of you, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible close by, to turn to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open a new tab and go to BibleGateway.com. That's a resource that several of us on staff use, BibleGateway.com. You can type in Matthew 26 there in the text will come up for you as well. We're only two weeks away now from Easter, and so as Paul said, we're starting a new series today, and we're going to be studying the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to meet several different people in the accounts that we'll study. These are all people who had different ideas about who Jesus was and who they hoped he would be, and it's our desire that in this series we'll understand better why Jesus came and why he had to do what he did and what it still means for us today. We're going to start this morning, as I said, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and I want to start in verse 6. Here's what it says. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' head as he was reclining at the table. Now let's pause right there. John's account of this exact same event fills in some extra details for us. In John chapter 12, we learn that Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, is actually also at the table. Along with his two sisters, Martha, who's serving the guests, and Mary, who is actually the unnamed woman we just read about in Matthew's account. Now, we're told that Mary has this alabaster jar filled with perfume, and it possibly looked something like this. This is an alabaster jar from Canaan. It's dated somewhere around 500 B.C. to the first century A.D., and a jar like this, filled with expensive perfume, would have been a family treasure. In fact, Mark's gospel goes on to tell us that the perfume inside was worth 300 denarii, which translates to about $10,000 today. Now, I've never seen a $10,000 bottle of perfume. I'm pretty sure it's the same brand that Jerry Neville wears. He smells great. Uh, but Mary's jar has likely been passed down from generation to generation before coming into her possession. And now we read that, that she takes this very expensive, very precious perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus. In verse 8, we read, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told 
in memory of her. So the disciples see uh, what Mary has done and they begin to rebuke her. Mark's gospel says they were rebuking her harshly. They weren't holding back their contempt, their disgust at this apparent waste. But Jesus stops them. And he not only stops them, but he honors Mary for what she has done. He says that her act will forever be told alongside the gospel. And that's really important. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But first, watch what happens next in verse 14. We read, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Okay, so we see that Judas has reached his breaking point. He is done with Jesus to the point that he doesn't even ask a certain price. Jesus is worth so little to him at this point in the story that that Judas doesn't even name a price. He, He says, whatever you'll give me is better than what I've got now. It says, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, many scholars believe the coin that was used to pay Judas was most likely a Tyrian shekel. These were likely the same coins that uh, were required by the priests for the temple tax because of their high silver content and therefore would have been the currency on hand for this payment to Judas. What's even more important, though, is Matthew's use of the phrase 30 pieces of silver. It's a reference pointing back to both the Old Testament law and the prophet Zechariah. We find the phrase first in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, where the law says that if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. And so we see that that 30 pieces of silver was set as the payment to be made for the death of a slave. Now fast forward to Zechariah chapter 11 where the prophet asked the Israelites to pay him for the work he had been doing among them. And look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. Zechariah says, I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me, and here it is again, 30 pieces of silver. Now that payment was meant to be an insult. The Israelites gave Zechariah a slave's wage to let him know that they did not value his prophecy, that he had no value to them whatsoever. And then in verse 13, he says, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. Now, this is God speaking. The Israelites weren't just undervaluing Zechariah, they weren't just insulting the prophet, they were insulting God. And Zechariah writes, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Now, if you read on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, you'll find that Judas eventually throws his 30 pieces of silver back into the temple of the Lord, just as Zechariah had done. And knowing that that had been paid as blood money, the priests decide not to keep it, but to buy a piece of land with it. And that piece of land was known as the potter's field. Do you see all of the connections being made? Matthew's mention of 30 pieces of silver is a clear reference to Zechariah's experience and his prophecy of unfaithful men undervaluing a prophet of the Lord with an insulting amount of money. 
And that's exactly what has happened now in verse 16. But now the chief priests have someone on the inside. And it's someone who could lead them to Jesus in a private spot, away from the public eye, a place where they could arrest him without any incident. And so Judas begins watching for the right time and place to betray the Lord. Now let's jump down in Matthew 26 to verse 20. Jesus and his disciples have found a private place to celebrate the Passover, and Judas has rejoined them. And here's what it says in verse 20. It says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Now notice when Jesus says that someone will betray him, no one seems to suspect Judas. We know the end of the story, but they didn't. And Jesus doesn't tell them who it is. And so they all start questioning this. They all start saying, it's not me, is it, Lord? Surely you don't mean me. In verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And then in verse 25, Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Or in some translations, and even more to the point, Yes, it is you. And with that, Judas has heard enough. He gets up from the table, and he leaves to do exactly what Jesus said he would do. That's where we're going to stop in the text for today. But there are two things that I think we should take away from this account. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write these down. The first thing is this. Judas represents all of us. Judas represents all of us. And that's probably not the takeaway that you were hoping for. I get that. Nobody wants to be the bad guy in the story. But you can see this unfortunate truth in the way that Matthew records these events. For example, did you notice in verse 8 that it's all of the disciples who had the indignant response to Mary's pouring out of the perfume? That's interesting because the other gospel accounts only tell of Judas's response. But here, Matthew says they all felt the same thing. They all felt disgust and contempt at this wasteful act. It wasn't just Judas. And then furthermore, after Judas has left the upper room, Matthew is sure to include Jesus' words in verse 31, where he tells his disciples, you will all fall away on account of me. So it's easy for us just to peg Judas as the villain. But understand that while the other disciples may not have sold Jesus out for silver, they all had a price they were willing to pay and no more. Judas may have betrayed Jesus phenomenally, but they all will do it eventually. In fact, Peter will even end up denying that, that he ever even knew Jesus. And so Matthew seems to be careful to communicate these things in a very inclusive way, stressing the fact that all of these guys, even though they were Jesus' disciples, all of them were unrighteous. All of them had impure thoughts and impure motives. And while it was different for each one of them, they all had a price. The question is, What's yours? I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. Maybe we're willing to follow Jesus when it's easy, but at what point do you stop? 
At what point do you downplay your relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's in, in front of your friends and you don't want to, you know, act weird or seem weird in front of them. And so you pretend like it's no big deal, your relationship with God. Or maybe God has convicted you of something like the websites you visit or maybe a, a relationship or uh, the, the things that, that you allow into your body, a habit or an addiction of some sort. He's convicted you of that, but you've resisted him because you don't really want to give it up. Or maybe he's calling you to put him first in your finances, but you've said no because that would mean sacrificing something that you honestly love more. Or maybe it's getting involved at church, you know, joining a team, finding ways to serve others, but you like the freedom of being non-committal and your commitment to Jesus maybe stops at inconvenience. I just want you to see that whatever the point where you say this far, Jesus, and no farther, that's your price. And we all have one or have had one. That's where our commitment to Jesus stops. And just like Judas, we sell him out. A couple of hours later in this story, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus's words from verse 31 come true. As all of his disciples scatter, they run away, and they desert him. But in the chaos of it, Mark includes what at first seems a strange detail. In Mark chapter 14, we read that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, why does Mark want us to know that someone ran away naked? Well, possibly two reasons. Uh, first, anytime someone runs past you naked, you're going to tell people about that, right? If somebody runs across the stage naked today, you might not remember a word that I say, but you're going to remember that. But secondly, and more importantly, many believe that what Mark is doing in giving us this detail of a man running naked from the garden is really a metaphorical picture for the entire human race. Remember that back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve also fled naked from a garden. They had once been naked and felt no shame, according to Genesis 2.25. But after they sinned, they recognized their nakedness. They felt shame and they fled from the presence of God. So the bigger picture that Mark is illustrating in his gospel is that the entire race sinful, naked, is fleeing from God. And in the garden, the failure of humanity is put on display as we abandoned the one who would never abandon us. So again, let this sink in. Judas represents you, and he represents me. We are not the hero of the story. We're actually the villain because that same betrayal and a willingness to sell Jesus out for a price, it's in my heart and it's in yours too. That's the first thing I want you to see from this account. The second is this, uh, I think it's important that we understand why Judas did what he did. And the short answer is this, that Judas betrayed Jesus because Jesus disappointed him. 
Judas betrayed Jesus because Jesus disappointed him. Judas had expectations about the coming Messiah. Judas wanted a Messiah who would deliver the Jewish people from the oppression of Rome. And he wanted a a front row seat for all of it. Most of the Jews expected that the coming Messiah would be a strong military leader, that he would restore Israel to its previous glory and, and that he would be one who would rule on David's throne. And if Jesus was this conquering Messiah, then Judas, being one of his 12, thought for sure that he would have a prominent place in the coming kingdom. But instead of leading a military campaign, Jesus came preaching grace for sinners. He came preaching a message that all of us, even at our very best, fall short of God's standard. And all of us need a savior. We all have that same sinful heart that needs to be redeemed. And Jesus came not to save the world from Rome. He came to save the world from hell. He came not to establish an earthly kingdom, but rather to make a way for all of humanity to enter his kingdom. And he did it by living a completely sinless life, by being made perfect and then laying his perfect life down as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that means that now, when you put your trust in Jesus, there's an exchange that happens where Christ takes all of your sin He paid the penalty for it on the cross, absorbing God's wrath on your behalf. And in exchange, he gives you his righteousness. And now, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your wickedness. He doesn't see your evil deeds. He no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. He no longer sees the things that are hidden in our heart. He sees his perfect son whose righteousness was given to you, not because of anything good in us, because of his great love for us. John tells us in the opening of his gospel that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. That's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's what he came to do. And that was disappointing to Judas. But do you know who got this exactly right? It was Mary. It was Mary who was so overwhelmed with the love that God had shown her that she gave up the most valuable thing she had as she poured out her very precious, very expensive perfume on his hair and on his feet. And therein you see the difference between Judas and Mary. To Judas, Jesus wasn't worth anything. A slave's wage was enough for Judas to betray Jesus. But for Mary, Jesus was worth everything. For Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. If I follow Jesus, then then it'll mean this for me. He can get that for me. For Mary, Jesus was the end. He was all she wanted. And Judas says, Jesus, give me this world. But Mary says, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And Pastor J.D. Greer says it this way, that Judas thought of Jesus as useful. Mary thought of him as beautiful. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Because something that's useful, it helps us on our mission to get the thing that we really want. 
right? Maybe it's health, maybe it's a, a good relationship, a career, success, whatever it might be. But something that's beautiful, you just love in and of itself. Like a shovel is useful, right? I, I can use a shovel to produce a garden, to, to produce flowers, to produce a, a beautiful yard. It's a useful tool. But if a shovel breaks, I just throw it away and I get another one because it's not what I really wanted. It's just a tool to get to what I wanted. But my family is beautiful. I mean, my wife and my kids, I don't love them for what they can get for me. I love them for who they are. And therein, you see the difference between Judas and Mary. Judas's see Jesus as useful. Mary's see Jesus as beautiful. And because of that, Jesus says that wherever the gospel is preached, that Mary's story will be told alongside of it. And I think that's because in Mary, we have a living picture of what appropriate response to the gospel looks like. Again, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And I suspect that there are some of you uh, who are feeling like you're at a sort of a crossroads right now. I mean, the events of the last couple of weeks have gone from inconvenient to annoying uh, to difficult or worse, and we don't know where it's going to end. And, and some of you are feeling confused. You might be feeling anxious. Some of you may be even angry at God, and maybe you're wondering if Jesus is even worth following at all. And I'm here to tell you today that he is, but not for what he can give you in this life, but because he is life. And I hope that when you look at the cross, you see not something useful, but someone beautiful. When you look at the cross, I hope you see the beautiful body of Jesus broken for you, the beautiful blood of Jesus shed for your sins and mine, paying the high price for our freedom. When you look at the cross, I hope that you see, like Mary, something beautiful and that you respond as she did. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. If you're maybe seeing yourself in this story a little bit differently today, if you're maybe feeling the, the Father speaking to your heart, highlighting your great need for forgiveness and mercy, I want you to know your life can look completely different starting today. I want you to know that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be forgiven and to experience new life in him. And if you are sensing that pull on your heart right now, I wanna encourage you uh, to let us know that in the comments. We wanna reach out to you. We wanna answer any questions you might have about a relationship with Jesus. Let us know in the comments. Maybe send us an email at info at genesischurch.me. We'll get back with you and, and we'll take all the time it needs to talk about what a relationship with Jesus looks like. But I wanna challenge you with this. If you're feeling that pull today, respond today. Because the scriptures are clear that, that now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. You have been given today as a gift. You are not promised tomorrow. And so again, if you're feeling that pull today, I, I want you to respond right now. Maybe even as I pray. And let's pray together.
Father God, I thank you so much for the beautiful life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, that he has given us hope. He has given us new life. He has offered us the forgiveness from everything wrong that we have ever done and that we can be uh, viewed as your sons and daughters because of his life-giving sacrifice on the cross. Lord, if there are those watching today, listening today, reading your word, Father, and recognizing I'm outside of that family. I need to be in that family. Lord, first and foremost, I pray that you would press on their hearts that it's not by good works. It's not by being good enough. It's not by doing enough. It's not by working at all. You paid the price in full for us to know forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. And Father, I pray that they would boldly respond to that pull on their heart today and that they would surrender their life to you. And I thank you, Father, that when we come to you in humility, when we come to you trusting the blood of Jesus, that you don't send us away disappointed, Lord. That you fulfill in us what you have promised to us, the life-giving, life-giving hope of Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you so much for making him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.